Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. You have the very good taste to have tuned in to the best culinary conversation. And whether you love to cook or love to eat, you can take your cooking skills to the next level just by staying tuned. Every Sunday, I like to dish on everything from food to recipes, wine, beer, and cocktails, health, tech, travel, and more. And so I hope that I can feed your soul. And you can always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. And you can read my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at Chef Jamie Gwen. We have a full plate this hour, so please do stay tuned. Coming up, we'll be toasting with Riesling. Your wine professor, Michael Jordan, is here. We'll also be road tripping with author Sarah Henry to farmsteads on the California coast to learn about the passion of great farmers, cheesemakers, and more. And we're dishing on Vietnamese cuisine before the end of the hour with a story of the matriarch of modern Vietnamese cuisine and her beautiful influence on Southern California. But first, I thought that we should talk about summer corn to kick off the show. What a lovely thing it is, don't you think? You can grill it or steam it or eat it off the cob. You just don't want to miss out on that sweet summer crop, right? Nothing says summer quite like corn on the cob, maybe because of its climatic roots. Scientists actually believe that the people of central Mexico developed corn from a wild grass at least 7,000 years ago. I love food facts. Also known as maize, corn eventually spread north to the southwestern U.S. and then south to Peru. Columbus acquired corn from Indians in America brought it back to Spain. From there, it spread to Western Europe and in time to the rest of the world. And corn is now grown on every continent except Antarctica. That's actually what I call very necessary dinner party conversation. And what food is more synonymous with summer than freshly picked corn on the cob, right? I love the host of different varieties that are available today. That whole array of colors like red and pink and black and even purple amaze me. No pun intended. And just for fun, before you bite into that cob at your next barbecue, you should take a closer look. Because the average ear of corn has 800 kernels arranged in 16 rows with one strand of silk for each kernel. Fascinating. But there are so many alternatives to eating corn straight off the cob that I thought we should dish about it. So let's start with freshly made creamed corn. Oh yes, where you throw fresh corn kernels into a pan with some unsalted butter and after a little while you add some cream and then you season it, you heat it, and you eat it. 
then you can, of course, easily take the kernels off the cob to use it for a bevy of dishes. I suggest that you stand the corn on the cob upright in a bowl and then use a paring knife to cut down along the kernels as close to the cob as you can. The bowl captures the kernels. And of course, you could also line a cutting board with a kitchen towel and cut the kernels off. And the chef's tip here is that the towel acts as a buffer to keep the kernels from flying around. Then for complete yield, after you've removed the kernels from the cob, you want to use the back of your chef knife to scrape the corn cobs of the corn milk, as it's called. That's that milky liquid that you can extract from the cobs. And it's a really delicious addition to corn soups and chowders. Now, for waste not not want not purposes. You can also boil the cobs for added flavor. You can throw them into a soup um, or you could just simmer them in water for about 10 minutes and you have this infused delicious liquid that's perfect to substitute for plain water in recipes that lend themselves to the sweet taste of corn. I think of it as homemade corn stock. And then now that you have the kernels off the cob, what should you make? Well, how about a corn and avocado salsa for grilled salmon or a tomato and corn salsa for dipping chips into? Scallops, shrimp, crab, lobster, they all pair well with corn too. And for summer salads or clam bakes, I happen to love it raw. And who doesn't love a corn soup, hot or cold, left chunky or pureed until smooth? You could serve it alongside a a big, beautiful arugula salad with fresh grapes, and you have a meatless Monday vegetarian entree that's absolutely sumptuous. Now, if you hadn't paired it before, Coconut and corn are a crazy great flavor complement. So next time you make your corn soup, use coconut milk, and then you can either, you know, dish it up in a bowl, throw in some fresh corn kernels or some leftover roasted corn kernels or some fresh lump crab to the top. You could also puree it until smooth, that coconut corn soup, and serve it just in a small shooter or a shot glass at the beginning of a party for a really delectable toast. But most of all, during the summer months, I love to grill corn. And my secret is a coating of mayonnaise on the corn cobs to lock in the moisture. Don't knock it till you tried it. It's really fabulous. Or you can always grill corn in the husk where it actually steams itself. And it makes uh, cleaning the husks of the silk much easier, by the way, after it cooks. You also get the bonus of imparting really smoky, wonderful flavor from the grill without drying out the kernels. Oh, and another bonus, you get a really neat built-in handle when you fold back the husk and you peel or remove the silk, and then you have that steamed corn within. So I peel the husk, remove the silk, and add a compound butter that melts as you eat it. And that eliminates the need to roll the cob in butter after cooking. And it's so delicious. You can make a pesto compound butter or any kind of herbaceous butter. You could make a, a garlic compound butter or a chipotle compound butter. The possibilities are endless. And then, of course, I have recipes galore for the summer season to savor the bounty and capture the sweet essence of fresh corn at its peak. Corn cakes, corn salsas, corn chowder. Ooh, and a maple chipotle grilled corn recipe I'm quite proud of. All posted at chefjamie.com. 
So I hope that you will check it out. Okay, it's time for food news this week. A more serious topic, maybe, than uh, you've heard in the past, like, you know, the newest cracker brand or what kind of ice cream flavor Ben & Jerry's just released. Uh, but this one is important. No matter how many times we read about the startling statistics or listen on this show and others to the extraordinarily, I mean, embarrassing numbers on food waste in America, it just doesn't seem to have the impact that it should. So I am suggesting that you watch the Canadian food documentary called Just Eat It. The documentary has won numerous awards. A chef friend made me aware of it recently, and it is one of the most stunning and startling portrayals of food waste in today's society. It was created by Grant Baldwin and Jen Rustemeyer, and the film follows the two of them as they attempt to eat only food that is going to be thrown out for the duration of six months. The film is actually interspersed with interviews from food waste experts and farmers who explain in their own words and from their passion the extent of the problem of food waste in America. And I think it's the education that we all need to make a change in the way that we handle our food and prevent waste. In fact, in fact, kudos to the Huffington Post for writing a really terrific piece about the food documentary, Just Eat It. It is serious food for thought, and I hope that you will watch it. Once again, the Canadian food documentary called Just Eat It. It is food news that you can use. Don't touch your dial. We'll be right back with the wine professor, the sommelier for the people. Michael Jordan is here, and we are toasting with Riesling. Right after the break, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Files rejoice, the master is back. Sommelier for the people, Michael Jordan, member of the Court of Master Sommeliers, who has trained the finest sommeliers around the world. That's why we call him our resident wine guru, is here. He is the director of Global Key Accounts for Jackson Family Fine Wines, and he's toasting us, sharing insight today into Germany's most noble grape, and what I call the ultimate summer pool wine. We are waxing poetic and teaching you everything you need to know about Riesling. And your wine professor, Michael Jordan, says class is in session. Is that right? Hi, Michael. <laughs> oh, Chef Jamie, so nice to be with you today. Yeah. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm glad to have you back. And class is in session. So let's talk, talk about... Um, Germany's undisputed star. You know I love Riesling. I do call it pool wine. I endearingly call it that, but it's very versatile, and I do consider it summer wine. Like, it pairs beautifully with pork and seafood and every Asian cuisine known to man, and I think you get a lot of bang for your buck when it comes to uh, quality for price. I, I absolutely agree with you, and in my humble opinion, I think uh, the Riesling grape is the undisputed king yes. of all white grapes, hmm. believe it or not. But, yes, I, I said that. 
and I will arm wrestle anyone that wants to dispute me. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to win at the arm wrestle, but <laughs> we'll all win if you talk to us, please, about the styles. Because interestingly enough, in my classes with you way long ago, I think that understanding German wine labels might have been one of the more difficult uh, we addressed, and you just have to know what to look for when it comes to choosing a Riesling. That's absolutely true, and uh, you know there are several varieties of grapes that that do. Uh, they're grown in Germany, and and great wines produced there. Pinot Noir, they're growing that now too. But really, the the, the best wines, uh, white wines, are coming out of Germany. Are definitely all Riesling. Yes. Uh, there are some different regions of. Uh, there are 13 wine-growing regions in Germany, and a couple that we're really very fond of mm-hmm. are the coolest area uh, down in the south is the Mosul. Yes. The warmest area down in the south is the Falls, spelled P-F-A-L-Z. Right. And in between those two, we've got a beautiful area that is more commonly known called the Rheingau. Uh, as you grow your Riesling in colder places, you'll have more of a kind of a lime, green apple tart uh, flavors. And the warmer the places where you grow that same grape, you'll have more tropical, uh, let's say, peach, apricot, pineapple flavors from the same darn grape. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? Okay, start with the dry styles, if you would. We know those as trokin, right? And they're increasingly finding their way to the U.S., and they are extraordinarily food-friendly. Absolutely true. Uh, the the dry dry Riesling can be just like bone-dry, and when Riesling is produced, uh, fermented, the, we're, we're, we're doing is fermenting the grapes and leaving either a certain amount of residual sugar in that, that what we ferment or fermenting all the sugar out of it to be a completely bone-dry wine. And that stuff, when it's young, can be uh, almost raspingly acidic and tight as a piano wire, if <laughs> you will. Uh, but with a few years of age, will soften and become much more palatable. However, we have a huge amount of wine uh, professional wine lovers that <laughs> we we've created a new term for the word acid heads. Okay, <laughs> uh, you know, if, you, if any of you grew up in the 60s, you know the other term, and yes, we're not going to talk right. about that here today. But uh, there are people that really are enjoying high-acid high wine. High-acid really, wine. Yeah, crisp, fresh, super high-acid, no oak, huh. uh, and intensity. And these wines probably find their best matches with things like shellfish, uh, seafood, uh, feathers, you know, chicken, feathers. squab, quail, yes. turkey, those types of things. Uh, but they're very powerful and intense for white wines. It's really incredible. Amazing. That that really high acid palate is starting to grow in popularity. It's very uh, a parallel, I would say, to the food side, because you're a foodie, Michael, yeah. um, oh, that sure. we're eating much more fermented product, um, a, a lot more vinegar based because we know the virtues and the benefits of vinegar for the body, right? That um, very um, acid versus alkaline conversation that we have often. And I would really sort of align those two flavor profiles, high acid and um, pickling fermentation and those kind of uh, 
palate pleasers as v- very similar, in fact. Well, well, and Chef Jamie, to your point, which I'm really glad you brought that up because those dishes that have the acidity, the, the acid content, right. whether it's vinegar or whatever they've got going on in these, uh, are very difficult for wine pairing pair. for traditional wines, sure. right? If we don't have more acid in the wine than we have in the dish, we're going to have a problem. It's not going to taste good. Hmm. Just like if we don't have more sugar in the wine than we have in the dish, the wine will taste sour and bitter. So uh, we're not just pairing flavors anymore. We're really getting down into deeper levels of food and wine pairing and understanding the building blocks or what we would call, you and I, the structure of the wine, Mm -hmm. which has to do with tannin, acid, alcohol, sugar content. Uh, those, Those building blocks called the structure are really important in the pairing of food just as the flavors are. Of course, as is the alcohol content of the wine. And we talk a lot about that. So if we take the next step to the styles of Riesling we're discussing from Trokin to Cabinet, they're slightly sweeter, but they also have a lesser alcohol level. So you get a really nice balance of the sweetness and the acidity, right? Absolutely correct. You know, and see, I love, I love how you're, you're gently... Uh, I'm gently moving up the the ranks, right? To, to the class, yeah. Hey, class, listen up. <laughs> we have, you know, the Riesling grape is, the reason I call it the king, undisputed king of all white grapes is because there are so many diverse styles that you can make from this one grape. Right. We can make a bone-dry Riesling that really is so raspingly acidic, we need to age it for five years before we're comfortable drinking it, okay? And then all the way to a medium-sweet, a kind of sweet, a very sweet, and a, a wine, a dessert wine that's so sweet, it almost hurts under your chin mm-hmm. when you drink it because it's just so intensely sweet. Uh, and I'm talking on the delicious end. Uh, you know, we've got Riesling that can be made in so many different styles for so many different applications. It's the same grape. That's why uh, it's one of our very favorites, yours and mine. Yes, for sure. And I happen to love, you talked about the the different styles. You went all the way from the dry to the Trockenbarenauslesen. I like the in-between, the middle. I think they're the most food-friendly. They have a touch of sweetness. They have um, lovely acidity, but not overwhelming acidity. And they are... That's what makes them summer wines. They are just easy to drink to me. So if we were to choose right in that middle range of Riesling, what are you drinking now? Well, I will tell you, uh, well, I love a, I love uh, Spätlese, S-P-A-T-L-E-S-E, Spätlese, okay. uh, and Cabinet, K-A-B-I-N-E-T-T. These are, gang, what we're talking about are levels of ripeness levels of sugar in the grape when we harvested the grape because we, we've talked about trocken, which is bone dry, mm-hmm. Riesling. Then the next slightly sweet level, it's off dry at best, and really what you have there is enough sugar, residual sugar in the wine to balance the acidity mm-hmm. and make it much more pleasurable and enjoyable to drink because sugar can mask acid and acid can mask sugar, and then you just have a more drinkable, easy wine. Yes. Now, uh, a little bit higher level of sugar in the wine, but not super sweet yet, is Spätlese. And that's what and you're I'll drinking. You, oh, right now during yes. summer, because you, you can actually taste a little sweetness, mm. yeah, but you still have those great fruit flavors, mm. and there's still that much acid in the wine 
but it's not, you don't perceive it as being the attack on your palate because the sugar kind of softens it. And we're pairing with a much more broad degree of, of foods now. Right. Give me pork chops or mm. any kind of pork dish, any kind of anything with feathers and just about any fish and, you know, uh, fish sauce, things like that. Oh, my God. Great with us. Spateleys are Riesling. He is the director of Global Key Accounts for Jackson Family Fine Wines. He is your sommelier, the sommelier for the people. And he, yes, was and always will be my actual wine professor. He is Michael Jordan, and he graces this show as our resident wine expert. And we toast you. Cheers to Riesling this summer and for many summers to come. I'll talk to you soon, Michael. Safe travels, and thank you as always. Uh, You're welcome, Chef Jamie, and everybody out there. Share your wine with others. You know, it makes it more delicious. No doubt. There is more delicious conversation on food and wine in your radio right after this as well. Don't go away. This is a place for people that love to eat. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. In farmsteads of the California coast, writer Sarah Henry and photographer Aaron Scott give readers a behind-the-scenes tour of 12 scenic California coastal farms, offering you an insider's view of agricultural gems and intimate portraits of the farmers who run them. It will make you want to jump in the car and plan a road trip. It did just that for me. Sarah Henry is an exceptional journalist, and she shares the stories, the uh, the heritage, the intimate details of apple growers and shellfish harvesters and coffee producers, those that go way beyond organic to bring the best food to market. I am delighted that Sarah Henry is here to take us on a virtual tour of the best California farmsteads. Hi, Sarah. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me, Jane. Of course. Um, if you would, just before we uh, delve into um, buffalo gelato, of which I can't wait to try, by the way. It's very good. <laughs> um, just describe the the concept of a farmstead, if you would, because I think it's a wonderful sort of evolution, but interestingly enough, we've gone back to our roots a little bit, and I think we're more in touch with our food than ever. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So for the purposes of our book, we defined a farmstead as uh, a farm or an agricultural place that has structures like barns and farm stands and creameries. There are also places where farmers make and sell on-site what's known as value-added products. It could be cheese or wine or preserves or oysters or even uh, buffalo, water buffalo gelato. Yes. Um, and also for the purposes of this book, um, a farmstead was a, is a place where a member of the public can interact in some way with the farm and or the farmers. So that was our thinking as we went about it. We wanted people to, in fact, jump in the car and go visit. And what an extraordinary experience for you in all your years of journalism to be able to visit and get to know and really share the heart of these very passionate individuals. Um, We must start with Buffalo Gelato. Tell us how it was and a little bit more about Double Eight Dairy, please. So Double Eight Dairy is in Petaluma and when we were trying to narrow down um, 
the number of farms to feature in the book. Um, we have a baker's dozen, 13, so we snuck an extra one in there because Navarro Vineyard and Winery also has a, a cheese uh, creamery down, down the road a little bit. Yes, but, I saw um, that. I wanted to have very diverse farms represented in terms of size and in terms of crops and in terms of farmers. And so for me, double-A dairy, I mean, come on, water buffalo gelato right there. People are excited, right? How cool is that? Exactly. And then what was interesting about Andrew Zlot, the farmer, is that he is a change of career farmer. He was a hedge fund manager in Hong Kong, and he came back to Marin County where he had grown up. And he really, um, you know, having been an investor, he really wanted to do something with his hands. He really wanted to do something different and started scouting around for what that might mean and uh, stumbled into water buffalo farming. And there is a gentleman, a partner in the business, who, whom you call a water buffalo whisperer? Right, that's Curtis. <laughs> and Curtis has, you know, a long background in the dairy um, field. And he's just very sweet um, and was really um, just watching him with the animals because they sort of have a reputation for being a little sort of ornery yes um but he was he was terrific with them and of course he also turns out this delicious product um and they have um, very creative flavor pairings and Mm. it's a huge hit here in the bay area yeah no doubt and i can't wait to taste it i thought it was so interesting when you talked to the fact that a cow produces far more milk in a shorter time than what you actually get from a water buffalo. So it makes the gelato that much more prized. The milk is that much more prized, of course. Um, but is it is it rich and creamy and delicious? Can you describe the flavor profile for us? Yeah, totally. It's sort of a velvety yes. taste and mm. texture. Uh, very creamy, very lush. It feels, in fact, very decadent. Mm. Um and so it is coveted and, uh, you know, it has a premium price attached because, yes. frankly, it takes a lot of work to get a little amount of milk. <laughs> um, sure. But, it's, you know, it has such a rich butterfat content. Mm. So it is indeed delicious. Okay, I'm in. And as we continue to travel the California coast with you, I think we should definitely make a stop in Marshall um, because I am an, uh, an oyster fan. And Hog, Oil and Hog Island Oyster rather um, has received very high acclaim for a good while now. Yes, more than 30 years. And what the, what the uh, shellfish uh, guys sort of represented for me was um, a very successful long-term business that started small, you know, with a borrowed boat and some borrowed money. Hmm. Um, and they've, they're really sort of industry leaders um, in t- terms of the pristine product they turn out, but also in terms of education and policy and helping the next generation of shellfish farmers come up. So I thought generationally it was really interesting to focus on these two shellfish partners. Yes. Um, and you know, to touch on also some of the environmental concerns that come up, of course, all our farmers talked about drought while we were researching this book. Um, no surprises there, but shellfish in particular have had a really challenging time because of ocean acidification, which is sort of the evil twin of climate mm. change. Yes. And so while we're sitting there slurping our delicious barbecued oysters in front of the beautiful Tamales Bay, I just wanted to sneak in just some of this information so that people really understand how um, precious this yes. product is that they make. Oh, for sure. And I think that's what's so wonderful about a book like yours is it enlightens us to not only these dedicated, passionate people, 
um, where we might often take for granted the goat cheese, not knowing where it comes from. But it also gives you a really new, interesting and necessary perspective of the challenges that they face and what goes into the product and what we all need to be mindful of to continue to propel the food cycle. And I believe it's all of our responsibilities. And I I speak about that a lot on the radio. Sarah, we need to take a quick break more on farmsteads of the California coast right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Welcome back. We're dishing with author Sarah Henry on farmsteads of the California coast. I love reading the stories. Um, and I wonder if you would please introduce us and give us some background on Mickey Merch. Sure. So Mickey is the farmer um, in Bellinas, affectionately locally known as Bobo. Bobo. Which um, is a, a fun farming hmm. agricultural community out in West Marin, and he is a second-generation farmer. Mickey had no intention on coming back to the farm. He went to read college in Oregon, wanted to be an artist, and is indeed an artist. And the farm stand that he runs, which is a 24-7 honor system farm stand, is a kind of funky, arty structure, just like other structures on the farm. And uh, he's been able to support a family of five coming back to the farm and growing greens and actually having the consumer come to him. He didn't want to have to go out and sell his produce. And he, so he's created a slightly different business model to that of you know, his uh, father. And it's, and it's worked out really well for him. I think it's quite extraordinary, a 24-hour farm stand. And as you mentioned, it's on the honor system, right? So if you happen to get up really early um, or you're visiting late and you find, uh, you know, beautiful beet greens or leeks or otherwise, you, on the honor system, take what you'd like, what you need, and you leave the money appropriately. And I can only assume, since he's successfully supporting his family and he's really created a wonderful business model, it's working. It's totally working. It's and amazing. Fact, we had a launch party for the Farmsteads book there. Huh. And even many local people had, you know, Bay Area local people had not been out to this farm. And I said to them, well, bring, you know, bring some uh, bags with you. And it was just lovely to see, I don't know, 50 to 80 people getting their eggs and their flowers and their produce for the, uh, you know, for the next few days ahead. And it's a really um, community-based and um, it's like going to a farmer's market, but it's even more special because it's just, you know, this tiny little stand on this side road and um, it feels like you're sort of in on a secret or something when you go there. Thank you for sharing all of the pieces of the pie. It's a wonderful book. It's beautifully photographed and I think it, it really does document true passion. And for those of us, Uh, so many of us that love food. Um, You made me hungry. I want to plan a road trip. I can't wait to visit all of the farmsteads. So congratulations to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, come visit. Okay, can't wait. Um, As Alice Waters was quoted in endorsing the book, um, she says, this book is a true celebration of meaningful work and beauty. And I agree. It is called Farmsteads of the California Coast. And it highlights the truly passionate, committed farmers and the work that they do. And you can learn more about Sarah Henry's prose at Sarah Henry Writer. 
and it's doublehthere.com. Sarah, come back soon, please. Will do. Thanks Thank for you. having me. As the delicious conversation continues, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, don't touch your dial. There's more to make you hungry right after this. Delivering the world of food directly to your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. In Vietnamese, on means to eat, which is a very happy coincidence, seeing that the on family has built an award-winning restaurant empire. Helene On, executive chef and matriarch of the House of On, is hailed as the mother of fusion. She has been inducted into the Smithsonian Institute for her signature style that brings together Vietnamese, French, and California influences. And her daughter, in fact, uh, one of five daughters, who is a Wharton School of Business graduate, Jacqueline On, tells the family story and shares her mother's delicious and previously secret recipes, all chronicled in a beautiful new book called On to Eat. The book is a fascinating peek into the evolution of an extraordinary cuisine and a true family legacy, and I am proud to call the On family, the on ladies, my friends. Jacqueline on is here to dish and I am so glad to have you. Hi, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Of course. Okay. The book is beautiful. What a labor of love. Your mother must be so proud. Yes. (laughs) I would imagine. It's been 40 years in the making. And you just celebrated the 40th year of this like living continued legacy. And if you would chronicle the family history for us, please. Your mom grew a restaurant empire to one of the 250 top businesses in the U S operated by a woman. And it was a very acknowledged and accomplished, uh, amazing feat for a woman who fled Saigon and the communist takeover and arrived in the U S with nothing. Right. My mother until it really happened how we we started in the restaurant business was that my grandmother, who loved to travel, decided in 1968 to travel to the United States, and she stopped in San Francisco. Hmm. And at that time, and she just fell in love with San Francisco, she, she stopped by this little Italian deli by Ocean Beach, and it happened that he was looking to sell his business. And it was very difficult at that time to get a visa. And her thought was, I'm a great chef you know what, I'll open the first Vietnamese restaurant. And that's actually how we got started in the restaurant business. And with the fall of Saigon, my parents came came over and helped with the restaurant business. And my mother slowly took over the business and really made the cuisine the way it is now. Very incredible, the, the influence that your mother has had. And she's become a matriarch, not only for the five of you, her daughters, but for so many others, for chefs, for comrades of mine who have watched the evolution of the Vietnamese cuisine, rather, morph into this really beautiful, elevated fusion of sorts. How do you describe it when you talk about your family restaurants? And I, I make them sound like family restaurants. We're talking mega celebrity loved, uh, you know, talked about worldwide restaurants. How do you describe the cuisine? I would describe it as 
modern Vietnamese. Yes. And with, and Helene, that's one thing so special about her food is her, her marriage between using the use of French techniques in her cooking, mm-hmm. like you mentioned before. And you, you see that in so, mon- so many of her dishes, from simple stir-fry dishes that you wouldn't think would have the French techniques in there. She does, and that's kind of the secret to why a simple stir-fry dish just tastes so much, I would say, better. It does. different than, you know, something you might find at another Vietnamese restaurant or a Chinese restaurant. There's a depth of flavor to your mother's dishes that is, uh, I think we all aspire to duplicate this incredible complexity. And I'd love to talk about some of the culinary traditions in the Vietnamese culture. Uh, What is your family table like at home? Well, we love to do, when we have family dinner, we love to do a lot of roasting. Mm. And actually, roasting is not something that's common in traditional Vietnamese cooking. But because of the French influence in my family, we've always done a lot of roasting. And even in my mother's childhood, she actually grew up with, because my grandfather did so much entertaining a French chef, a Chinese chef, and a Vietnamese chef. So that influence early on, the marriage between different cuisine and cultures was something that she was exposed to at such an early age. And we do a lot of roasting, using a lot of herbs. Something that I talked about in the book was that there's a saying that you, you eat with your eyes, but yes. in, our food, in our family, we always eat with our nose. And the <laughs> moment you enter my mom's house or the kitchen, you can just smell the the aroma and it just makes my mouth water every single time. Helene on and her daughters oversee five California restaurants and a catering business. And to that long list of accomplishments, her daughter Jacqueline has added a cookbook. It is a must read. It is called On to Eat Recipes and Stories from a Vietnamese Family Kitchen. And these are recipes I guarantee you will want to add to your collection. You can find the book on Amazon and more, of course, and learn more at House of On, House of and then A-N dot com. Jackie, come back soon and give a big hug to Elizabeth, your sister, please, uh, and a kiss to your mom, and um, know that I said my best. I will. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration and delicious conversation. I hope you'll join me every Sunday when we go way beyond mere eating and drinking. I'm on a mission to find the most exciting places, new experiences, emerging trends, and delicious dishes. And I love to share them with you. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour. You heard me speak about champagne grapes a little earlier in the show. A short season, but one to celebrate, no doubt. And if you want to be a culinary hero, then I suggest that you divide those beautiful clusters on the vine and take little individual clusters of champagne grapes and freeze them on a baking sheet. Once they're frozen, the next time you open a lovely bottle of wine to toast summer, you just hang an individual bundle off the side of the glass, and I guarantee you will be a culinary hero. It takes the concept of frozen grapes to a whole new level. I will share the tip and toast you on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find my daily dish at Chef Jamie Gwen. And always serving up seconds, you'll find everything you heard about on this show, including podcasts you might have missed at chefjamie.com. 
And then you can sharpen your cooking skills and please your palate just by tuning in. I'll meet you here next Sunday in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. (laughs) 